you see the picture of the New York subway has put up posters that say, hey, Pokemon Go players, we know you want to catch them all, but stay behind the yellow line. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a picture of Pikachu on the tracks waving like, come on, sucker. (laughs) (laughs) It's payback time. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 272 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have David Brady. Ruby Rogues panelists deny pretty much everything. News at 11. Jessica Kerr. I took a Pokemon gym last night. I don't even know what that means. Sam Livingston Gray. I can carry 80 gigs of data in my head. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we have a special guest, and that is Amir Rajan. Hey, how's it going, guys and gals? Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Yes, so let's see. I'm a game developer. It's great that I can actually say that now. Usually when I go to talk to people and I say, oh, I'm a software engineer, that's usually when the conversation stops. So now I can actually say game developer, and they keep talking to me. It's great. So I'm a game developer. Um, I've been doing it for, I guess, uh, three years now. Um, I made a number one app for the App Store called A Darkroom. And uh, working on two other games now, The Ensign, which is the prequel, and then A Noble Circle, which is it's a 2D platformer that's based off of the uh, satire by Edwin Abbott and his book Flatland. So that's my third game. And um, I guess I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now, being a nice. game developer. <laughs> so I've played A Darkroom and spent a lot of time (laughs) beating it i'm curious and and i know that we've had you on some of the other shows and uh you know we've talked about how that came about but i think that story's fairly interesting from the standpoint of developers and just going out and doing what you feel like you want to do and then from there we can get into ruby motion and game design and all of that stuff yep does that that sound like a good way to go yeah that sounds awesome and yeah, I think that's a, that's a good thing to do. I mean, Ruby Motion. I think the short version of it is that I used it and it worked really well for me. And I actually did a, the Android port just recently, about a, about two weeks ago, also in Ruby Motion. So being able to reuse the code base was good. But as far as the whole story, I actually started off my career as a .NET developer, and uh, I was on .NET since 2005. So from 2005 to 2013, I was a .NET developer, and I was like, okay, I need to take a sabbatical. Quit my job, ended up just binge coding on whatever I wanted. I found a darkroom, uh, the web version on Hacker News. So I went viral on Hacker News, and I can't, and I of course as a good developer, I right click view source, right, and I uh, saw the person's name. His name was Michael Townsend, and I you know sent him an email and said, "Hey, uh, I'm on a sabbatical. I'm going to learn iOS development. One of my things on my checklist was to actually build a video game. So let me re envision your game in the mobile medium, add my own spin to it, and all that good stuff." And uh, if it makes money, great, you know, we'll share profits or whatever. And I said, yeah, that's fine. So then I spent some time doing an Objective-C um, using Xcode, and that was 
really frustrating. So then I got off of that, found Ruby Motion, got back into Vim and all that, all that wonderful good goodness, being able to use Rake and everything. And I built the game out in about four months, pushed it to the App Store. Uh, it did nothing for five months. You know, you send out a tweet saying, "Oh, it's it's there, it's available for everyone to download." I think like the first day we got like thirty downloads. It was it was pretty abysmal. And then out of nowhere, it goes viral in the UK. And then it goes viral in the US and it stays at the number one spot for like 20 days. It's ridiculous. It was, nice. it was just madness at that point. During that first year, we were in the top 10 in like 70 countries. And then we were top 100 in all of them, all of the countries. And, uh, at the end of 2014, Apple actually recognized us as one of the top 10 games, paid games of 2014, which was, you know, That's really awesome. good. Yeah. It's, it's really awesome. And the crazy thing is it's a text-based RPG, right? You don't you don't expect a text-based RPG that's premium with no ads, no in-app purchases to actually make any kind of splash in the App Store, yeah. but it did. You know, and just transitioning from doing, you know, C-sharp corporate development and just the general nine-to-five job, cubicle work to just being on your own and that whole thing was, was uh, there's a lot to, you know, be said there, I guess. But that's the short version, I guess. I had a coworker who worked at Acclaim uh, entertainment and he worked on the port of Mortal Kombat 2 from the arcade stand up, you know, console to the PlayStation. And it went PlayStation Gold, which means it sold more than 30 million copies. And he was on the dev team and the developers got to share like 1% royalty, but that was amongst all 30 developers. So the team leads each got like 0.1. And by the time oh, it wow. got down to him, it was like 0.05 or 0.005 of a percent of a royalty. And then he just looked at me and grinned and he said, 30 million times anything is a nice number. Oh man. It, so, it paid, it paid for his house. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, from a revenue standpoint, it was actually like bittersweet. Uh, so I have all this on my blog, so you can actually like read detailed revenue numbers, but I'm really transparent with all this stuff. When we hit the number one spot, we were at, we were getting 20,000 downloads a day. So nice. that was insane. But then Apple takes a 30% cut yep. right off the bat. And then uh, we do a 50-50 split on royalty. And so it turns out if you're self-employed, you pay a 15% self-employment tax. And then given the tax bracket I was in, I was in the, you know, 30% or whatever. So overall, I was paying 43% taxes on, on that revenue. So we had $800,000 in revenue for that first year. And I walk away with about 260,000 mm -hmm. for that year. And it took about, it was a 14 month journey. So if you like do the math and try to actualize it, I was at about a bill rate of $111 an hour. If you can land a job that gives you a bill rate of $111 an hour, you're pretty much making what a number one app would make yeah. in the apps. And thank you for sharing that, by the way. I, yeah. I decided to share the story about a claim because I didn't know if you wanted to just be transparent about your revenue shares and that sort of thing. I was going to give you an easy out there. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate no, that. No. Any, any uh, revenue information you want, I'm, I'm more than happy to share. No problems there. That's awesome. The thing is, is that I worked at a claim with this coworker. I worked there for a year and a half. I destroyed my health. I destroyed my sanity. I did not destroy my marriage because I quit my effing job. Basically, I walked in and told my manager, look, I took this job to support my family, not the other way around, and tendered my resignation. But it took me 18 months and literally not being able to know what day of the week it was anymore because if it was a, ended in a Y, I had to go to work for 12 hours. I didn't make a single penny in revenue in royalties. You had a number one game in the App Store. In other words, you made $111 an hour by winning the lottery. Yeah. And that's what I try to tell people too, is that there's a part of it that's winning the lottery and that's getting viral and making to the number one spot. 
I've done a lot of data mining stuff to try to figure out exactly what happened there. And it's still a complete crapshoot on, you know, what connections I made with publishers or get that working. Now, when we hit the number one spot, the quality is what kept us there. So it's really easy right. to make the number right. one drop off, but to stay there for 18 days, that was crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. The, the funny part was that on the one year anniversary, I actually made the game free and, um, uh, it started climbing the free app store. So like first day we had like 30,000 downloads, which is actually par for the course. So you get like 10 X the number of downloads for a free app as you do for a paid app. Second day we were at 60,000. I was like, okay, for a number one game, you know, it's fine. Um, but then the third day, I was tracking the app, and we passed Candy Crush in the free app store. <laughs> and, oh, man, that was – I took a screenshot that was like, screw you, Candy Crush. you know. And eventually, after seven days, we had a million free downloads, and uh, we were the number three app overall. So the only, the, the only two apps that were ahead of us was the Facebook messaging app, which like, apparently everyone had to install, and then uh, Crazy Taxi by Sega, which was yeah. the editor's choice for that week. But – yeah, it was it was crazy, and then and then we went back to paid, and we just split the flag, and everyone's like, "Where to go? <laughs> Where'd this game go?" And it's like, "Okay, right. it's back in the paid I'm, section." But I'm we conquered both app stores. <laughs> you said that uh, you have to have the quality in order to keep your spot at number one, and if you've played a dark room, it's pretty minimalist, so quality isn't necessarily like graphics or anything, right? right. So, w- yeah. what do you mean by that? So, I think. Uh, so a couple of things I think attributed to the success for a dark room. Uh, one of them was that we were just so different from every other app out there, right? So you get the rigmarole of, Oh, this is some kind of grid matching game, or this has got the cartoony graphics or the yelling icon for the, for the app sort of thing, right? You see, you see the face with the, Arr, you know, you have all those apps doing that. So I think having that contrast really made us shine. The fact that we didn't have anything made us shine from that perspective. And the other thing with quality was that it's so, I don't I mean, I know you guys and gals can relate to this, is that this idea of you can almost, I put my heart and soul into that game. And I strongly believe that when someone does that and you work with something or you, you know, you actually use something that someone really put their effort into, it shows, it shows through. And it's hard to objectively put like a, a thumb on or a finger on what that really is. But um, I think that was another thing was that I remember the first day when I started working on the game, I was burning the midnight oil, right? I, I didn't know. I lost track of time. Next thing I know, it's it's like 4 a.m. in the morning and I'm still still coding. It was just a fun thing. But you see that quality show through. Um, I think another thing that helped Darkroom stay there was that I actually put developer commentary at the end of the game. So you actually get you know, uh, some background of who I am as a developer, who Michael is as a developer, and, you know, how we built the game out. So you get that personal connection. And I think that really, really helped with, you know, word of mouth recommendation too. But what do you think about that idea of like, you know, putting yourself into into a product? Is that something that you've noticed also? Or I think it gives it a better chance of success. I yeah. know people have poured their heart and soul into something that was, just wasn't going to work. But, yeah. I, you know, and I think if you have something that can succeed, I think... I don't know. I, I'm I'm not sure exactly how to say it, but I think it's okay can, to disagree. <laughs> no, what what I'm saying is, is I think in those cases, you know, people feel, you know, they can see the attention to detail, they can see the passion that you have for it, they can see the level of commitment that you have to it, and they connect better with it that way. Yeah, and, there's a big uh, difference between meeting requirements and making a beautiful piece of software. Yeah. There was an aspect of that that there that I, that does show through. At least, at least the reviews show that you know there's something happening. There's a a series of games uh, called Lifeline 
where and they make you crazy actually because they're on a time delay. You're supposed to be interacting with somebody who's in real time going to die because you're going to give them bad advice, and then you get to restart and do it all over again. And <laughs> sounds great. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. But by the time you get to the end of it, then the developers like they tell you who they are and what they're doing. Crashlands is kind of the same way. The developers are very transparent about who they are and what they're doing. And those two game shops have done something that you don't see from the AAA game shops, like like EA Sports and I'd say Acclaim, but they're bankrupt. Ha ha. Wouldn't have happened <laughs> to a nicer company. Ubisoft. <laughs> yeah, Ubisoft or, or or Bungie or something like that. You see, you see a title from those games, you know, you know immediately, AAA game. It's going to have high production value. It might not be any fun to play, but it's going to have very high production value. But for the small indie shops, when you get this transparency, the people who made Crashlands have made like five other games. And Crashlands was a lot of fun, but I had no interest in going to the app store and searching for that developer until I started watching the videos of them talking about the things that they were doing and how they were doing it and how they got, you know, the two brothers, the one brother was in the hospital and they got this whole story. And all of a sudden I'm really interested in why they're developing what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. And now I'm interested in their other games. And so you putting your stuff at the end of your game saying, this is about me, this is about Michael Townsend. This makes me want to go look at other things Michael Townsend has done for the web. It makes me want to go look at other things you have done in mobile space. And like you said, you've got two, two more games coming out. And I have no idea how much benefit you will get in this iteration of putting yourself into the game for people to see you and be transparent. But I strongly suspect I have no, I mean, the plural of Dave's anecdotes is absolutely not that data, but my suspicion is that people will be much warmer towards your follow-up games when they go, Oh, Hey, it's that guy. It's that same guy. Right. And uh, when the Ensign released, it became the number six app overall. So it was a shorter period of time, but it was immediately featured by Apple on their many features and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So it tracks about, I would say, 33% revenue of ADR because you'll have people that download the game and don't finish it. But I'm pretty sure that people that finish the dark room, um, I now present almost a quasi-interstitial saying that, hey, the prequel's available. I'm pretty sure that people go ahead and follow up and uh, download the ensign also. I did. Um See, so um, it's one of those things where there's definite stickiness once you get that first win. So what made you choose Ruby Motion? I mean, if you're going to go build an iOS app, it seems like the conventional wisdom is to go pick up. At the time, it would have been Objective-C. I actually thought about this because I knew this question was going to come. And, and I really reflected on this a lot, especially coming from my background. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, Visual Studio, as as much as people rag on Microsoft, Visual Studio is freaking awesome as far as the ide is concerned uh, it's not vim or emacs but it's pretty good for a code editor and when i went to xcode i actually started building a darkroom in xcode and objective c so i went to xcode and just the experience of xcode as an ide just wasn't fun i had a vim bindings at that point so i used an xcode vim ism but it just it still wasn't that great JetBrains does a much better job JetBrains does resharper and so they have something called app code and that was okay but it just felt too much like what I was trying to get away from, uh, from my corporate development environment. Then that's when I looked at uh, Ruby Motion. And the funny thing was that I got introduced to Ruby doing build automation for .NET projects. There was a, a gem out there called Albacore uh, back in the day. It was, uh, it's made by um, Derek Bailey. And uh, you build .NET projects using Albacore. And we had Jenkins integration at that point. So I never got actually introduced to Rails. It was strictly Ruby, Ruby's kind of mentality. And that's nice. when I did Zim. 
Vim and all that good stuff. And so I did all these build automation. I was like, man, Ruby is just a fun language to be in, being able to just do be in Vim and just use IRB and the REPL. All that was just felt just right. And then when I saw Ruby Motion, I was like, okay, well, I get to use Rake. I get to use whatever editor I want. The REPL integration is good for iOS simula- for the iOS simulator. I can publish my app without using my mouse. All this stuff is exactly where I want to be with uh, development. And then once you actually start building the application, the second part that I found was really important was the cultural aspect of it. I hate to say it, but there's almost an implicit culture that comes with choosing a language. And, you know, it's a tough statement to make, but when someone says, oh, I'm a, can I say PHP? PHP is... Oh, man, <laughs> Mandy, right, so. Mandy, can you bleep that? PHP is not a four-letter word. Guys, yeah. guys, guys, we're family-friendly. I'm a PHP 1.0 developer or a Fox Pro developer. That implicitly nice has nice. some culture associated with it good or bad right you hear someone say that you're they're a haskell developer i think okay he's albert einstein you know so there was there's an implicit culture that i knew i was walking into by choosing ruby motion and that was exactly what i found when i did that and um that's what i was worried about with using objective c was that going to objective c i'd get a lot of the ns apis the old um what what does ns stand for i even i even forgot next new, step Next step, yes. So you get a lot of the arcane next step APIs, uh, REST kit, AF networking. Some of the, at least the previous versions had that arcane feel to them. And uh, RubyMotion had a lot of the wrappers for uh, the UI kit stuff that just made it feel like Ruby. So uh, there's my long winded, very well thought out response. <laughs> so one of the things I hear about RubyMotion is that you write stuff that looks a lot like Objective C, except it's Ruby. And you kind of said the other way around, really, it's uh, you're using the frameworks, but it looks like Ruby. So is it both or can it be both? Yeah, so it's both. Short, the short version is both. So the the idea there is that there's a so uh, Hipbyte, which is the guys, uh, the company that built RubyMotion, um, they have a framework out there called Flow. Flow basically is a um, instead of using auto layout or Android's uh, widgets, they have almost a Flexbox style view rendering engine. So the idea there is that you can go on that higher level and do some of the boilerplate stuff and the and the productivity things at that level. But if you need to dip down into the next step APIs, you have that option also. So it's that aspect of I've got the power of Ruby. When Ruby Motion first came out, there weren't there weren't a lot of libraries, so you basically had to write Objective C. But then you saw commonalities, and I'm doing this button click event in this way where I'm passing this delicate. Well, now I'm going to create you know an implicit block with a yield and throw it in a mixin, and suddenly my wire up is a lot simpler. So you start building your own DSLs and you start building out more Ruby idiomatic Ruby APIs. And that work when I originally started, what, there was some groundwork there, but I had to, I had to work through a lot of those things. And um, then when it comes to it, it's like, well, what if the AP, what if the framework doesn't really support it? Then you go into the actual, okay, well, I can just use the Objective C libraries. It works with CocoaPods also. So I had a accessibility thing. So the game is actually playable by by blind people, and um, there was a voiceover capabilities. There were no Ruby gems available for that. So I just pulled in a CocoaPod, and then because it's Objective-C, I just used that Objective-C API through Ruby. And it is ugly. Uh, when you look at the APIs, it's next-step APIs. And you'll find yourself extending NS objects and saying, okay, well, I want UI labels to have this this function in there. And you just extend it, and you, you mix it in, open the class up however you want to do it, and you have those options, those newer, better APIs readily available. That's and it's awesome. just... 
it's nice being able to do that. It really what, is. One of Ruby's, we've had a couple, a show or two where we've just griped about Ruby. And one of the places where Ruby really kind of falls down is in graphics and rendering and, you know, windowing and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and then the answer from the Ruby community is, well, Ruby, it just isn't designed for that. And my response to that is Ruby's so freaking awesome that it should be for everything, anywhere, ever. Of course. Um, and that's like, doctor, my arm hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. Well, don't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But I had to generate a whole bunch of graphics for a website. And there are lots of tools that would have made it very, very easy. But by golly, I wanted to do it in Ruby. And literally the only easy way to do it, this was in 2007. So there were even fewer tools back then. The one tool that I really had that I knew how to use was uh, Java 2D Canvas. And JRuby was out and stable. And so like, I got to use JRuby. Yeah, it's, it's like it's Okay, yeah, I, I really don't want to try and handcraft, handcraft the bits in a bitmap uh, buffer and then try and, you know, uh, figure out how to pack it using the pack command. I'm just going to use the Java 2D canvas and just save the thing off as a, as a ping file. And yeah, that code looks like Java. It looks really, really ugly. But the stuff around it is pretty. Once you get two steps away from it, it you're back to Ruby again, and it's nice. Yeah, and that's why I brought up the cultural aspect, the implicit cultural aspect is that Yes, I can, I can choose Objective C and then my, you're right, I don't have Ruby code that looks like Objective C, but there are other human nuances to picking a specific stack or framework. And that's one of the things. It's the same thing that, well, why didn't I do it in Lua or why didn't I do it in Xamarin or, you know, or PhoneGap? It's, it's those same kind of things that you have to evaluate. And at that point in time, the Ruby community, just the approach to idiomatic Ruby really resonated with me. And that's why I continue to do Ruby Motion. That's, I think, why people like Ruby mm-hmm. as a language, too. So, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I guess earlier you answered one of my questions, which was going to be whether you had published to the Android App Store as well. But mm-hmm. uh, obviously, if you're talking about extending stuff in Objective-C, you didn't do that. Um, I'm curious, though. Uh, until that... two weeks ago. I did oh, do it, too. Really? Interesting. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so Darkroom is on iOS and Android now. Oh, neat. Okay. Yeah. Both just written released. in Ruby Mo- or both written in Ruby Motion, correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. Well, so yep. that obviously wasn't one of the deciding factors for you, though, when you chose Ruby Motion, which is funny because, like, when you look at the site, that's their tagline is that you can publish to different platforms. In 2013, they didn't have that option. It was strictly iOS, and. Uh, so the funny thing was that I had a Windows phone until 2013, guys. I was hardcore. Microsoft. That is hardcore.net. Yes, yes. So I had the I had the. Nokia. And you, you were told all your friends, it's not that bad. It's actually got it's, a pretty great interface. Awesome. Yeah, it was it was yeah. a really good interface. I, I it, and I actually built an app. I actually built Windows Phones app. I built a budgeting app that I actually deployed to the Windows Store and everything. It was. Uh, XAML, Visual Studio. So, and the, the, the tipping point was, uh, my CPA contacted me and said, well, we need to do your taxes. And I had to get my Scott Trade uh, PDF coming out from, uh, I had to send a PDF from St- Scott Trade. So there's an option of the, well, okay, how do I email this PDF? And I try to email it and emails the link. It doesn't download the PDF and create an attachment. It sends over the link. I'm like, this is, I'm not going to give her my Scott Trade password. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that was the last trial. I was like, screw this. I'm going to the Apple App Store. I'm going to get an iPhone. <laughs> and then when it, when it came to Remotion, I didn't have an Android device. So at that point, I was like, okay, I'm just going to just push to iOS and, and see what happens there. And um, that's pretty much my reason for choosing for for not choosing to go cross by. I was like, oh, I, I have no idea if this will even succeed, let alone make it to the number one spot. Yeah. 
So, so a dark room is, is get a very clean, very simple interface, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a text adventure game where you have buttons to choose. It's almost like choose your own adventure, right? Yeah. And so a lot of nostalgia there. Do you have any plans or interest? I realize the market is still very, very, very small. Do you have any plans to port to the Apple Watch or to the Linux Pebble? And if so, will Ruby Motion even do that? Right. So uh, Ruby Motion does do Apple Watch, and it uh, it does a TV too. So it does Apple TV also. And um, the tricky part there. So here here's the secret. Here's the secret with it. Um, there's not a lot of watch apps. There's not a lot of TV apps. So the monetary value for doing the port to those devices isn't there. Right. Except that if your app does support those devices, suddenly Apple cares and they might feature you. So you have an iOS app, you have an iPhone app that also supports watch and TV. They're more inclined to feature your app on the iPhone because you built a watch app and a TV app mm-hmm. for it. Lifelines so, um, is like that. Lifelines is like that. I'm, I'm confident that their Apple Watch integration yes. is entirely just there as like a loss leader Exactly. Uh, hey, Apple, please pay attention to us. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, of course and the, feature, the feature is substantial. Um, I've, if you get a first position, so there's the, there's the banner feature at the top. That's guaranteed. You're a guaranteed millionaire. You'll get, you'll, will get 700, easily 700,000 downloads that week mm-hmm. if you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you get the, uh, best new apps or like apps we're playing today, if you get a first position feature there, you can see a seven X in revenue. It's, it's crazy. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, um, yeah, it can be a very good loss leader. So from my perspective, pushing a dark room, I have an Apple Watch. It's, it's okay, right? It gives me notifications, but I don't see that as, as being a good medium for that. And then my other game, uh, which is uh, a noble circle, it's a portrait game. So it's a 2D platformer for, por- and it's a portrait game. So if I push that, push that to tvOS, I'd have to make it landscape. So that's a, a tricky part there. And with regards to just, you know, doing meaningful work or doing, you know, craftsmanship, I feel weird putting a product out there that isn't perfect. So for now, no Apple Watch or TV. But if you can support it, there's a good chance that will get you a feature. So I'm curious, uh, as you work on the Ensign and the Noble Circle, you know, the ecosystem around iOS has changed quite a bit over the last few years. How does that affect what you're doing with Ruby Motion? Short answer is it doesn't. So the way Ruby Motion works, and this is this is my you're going to see the chinks in my armor with regards to understanding compilers and runtime. But uh, basically, there's two parts to Ruby Motion. There's the compiler, and then there's the Ruby Motion runtime. So the compiler, all it basically uses the LLVM toolchain to take your Ruby code, it parses that, and pretty much directly maps it to Objective C. So if you think about new APIs that are available, they're pretty much available in Ruby Motion because the language, it, you basically go from surrounding brackets to parentheses and you have, it's almost a mechanical change to Ruby Motion. So that part is just for free. You get that. Now, the gotcha is that there's the Ruby Motion runtime. So the runtime, it adds the additional features that Objective-C doesn't have, like the mix-ins, the instant eval, method missing, class initialized, all those things. And so those aspects are in the, in the runtime. So it's kind of the opposite. When you have a new Ruby feature come out, that's when Ruby Motion has to quote unquote catch up and maintain parity with Objective C and Android. But as far as getting new Objective C APIs, it's basically a recompile against, against the new Objective C runtime and, and you get those things. And, um, so you, you still have to, I guess, visit the mothership, right? You still have to download Xcode 
and you still have to download all the all the Xcode developer tools, but you you don't open up Xcode after that. And same thing for Android. So uh, you you get the same APIs. You basically mentally translate it like JRuby, right? Convert uh-huh. Java to to Ruby. You get those APIs, but then you get the additional features of all the Ruby stuff that you get on top of that. Do you structure your code in the same way that you structure regular iOS apps? You have view controllers and delegates mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. It's just you have the nice Ruby syntax and whatever else Ruby Motion gives you, right? Yeah, so it's it, it was actually pretty interesting. Um, so you still have your app view controllers and all that good stuff. When I started on a darkroom, I only had the iPhone 4S. So the 5 wasn't out. Uh, definitely the 6, the 6 Plus, none of those things were out. Auto layout wasn't out either. So this is like a legacy code base. It's 20,000, 20, 25,000 lines of Ruby Motion, legacy Ruby Motion code. It's, it's crazy. But basically it got to the point where it's like, okay, well, now I need to support iPad. How do I go about doing that? So what I did was my view controller, I, I would have an iPad view controller and the phone view controller, but then I would use a mix-in for all my common code. So all my common interactions of, you know, creating a button or flashing this button in or throwing up an alert or basically those protocols or those interface, quote-unquote, uh, methods, using the term interface loosely, um, those would go into a mix-in. And then it was just a matter of using using that mix-in with the concrete view controls that I wanted to use. So you, you use all the default stuff, and then you can use uh, your mix-ins on top of that. So HipBytes, their flow framework, they're trying to, what they're trying to do is create a consolidated view for both Android and iOS. So you get native controls, native view concepts for both devices, but using a common suite of views and things like that. So they abstract out the idea of whether you use an activity or fragment or view controller or navigation controller, kind of consolidated stuff. That's interesting to see how that comes along. I wasn't able to take advantage of that because I was dealing with the legacy code base and yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> now, one more question about this, and then I think we should go back into uh, your story because I think that's very interesting. I just I find the idea of writing apps for mobile in things like Ruby and JavaScript just really interesting. So the other question I have is, how do you test? Do you just use RSpec, or do you have something else that you use to test on Ruby Motion? It's it's got the best name, Mac Bacon. So it's an <laughs> it's an RSpec dialect. So it's an uh, it's got some assertion support, and um, uh, my ADR code base actually has uh, I think like two three thousand lines of of tests. So I actually test the engine very heavily, and um, so it's it's called Mac Bacon. It's Looks like RSpec. You get some really low-level assertions, like is true, is false. It's got the old uh, fluent assertion approach to RSpec, so it's not the expect assertion, the new RSpec three ex- expect assertion stuff. But you just basically use that, and there's a rake spec command that lets you run the run the specs on the device and in the emulator. And as far as nice. UI automation, uh, you can actually do UI automation in both uh, Android and Ruby Motion. The tricky part for me is that. When you start getting into another uh, this part of the game, it's actually NP complete. I think it's not a solvable algorithm, so I couldn't automate the UI once you bought the compass. You know what I'm talking about there, but um, I couldn't automate the UI there. So there was a lot of manual testing from that standpoint. You can click buttons and do all that stuff through the test suite. It's pretty cool. A dark room is open source, so people can go and look at the, all of this, right? The web version is open source. Michael gave me a proprietary license for the okay. iOS version. Yeah. And so that, uh, just going into kind of dipping into some of the sabbatical stuff, 
Yeah, uh, when we hit the number one spot, we had to deal with clones, and that was you see the ugly side of open source at that point because people would just wrap the game in a web view, right? Put ads in it, and then put it out there, and then just generate rev- revenue from the Android version. Or people would use a darkroom dash free for the iOS version, and then people would download the free thing, and then I would get an email saying that, hey, your game doesn't save or it's riddled with ads. You know, it sucks. When you hit the number one spot in a week's time, you don't have time to go through a one-year trademark lifecycle. We are, we are a registered trademark now, but you just don't see that kind of thing happening. And then the systems that be like the government systems and stuff, they don't support that kind of setup. So we would do takedown notices and they're like, well, you have a common law trademark and that's fine and that'll only get you so far. So iOS, they honored that, but Android, because I didn't have a darkroom on Android, they said, sorry, we can't do anything. You don't have common law trademark here. Or they'll say, we need the trademark number and we didn't have that. So it's bittersweet. You know, it was open source. So I was able to create a derivative work that benefited the original author and myself. But then there were other apps out there that didn't do that, which is sad to see. And there are derivative works out there that did do that. And they're, they've open sourced based on that. But I was given a private license from Michael. We, we learned our lessons. Uh, Michael released a new game called Gridland. It's a web-based game, and it's it's proprietary also. He, he's not open-sourcing that engine either. And the Ensign is proprietary, and a Noble Circle is proprietary also. It sucks, but uh, I guess that's how the chips fell. So is there anything else to the stack other than RubyMotion that you want to talk about or using core data or anything like that on the back end? So there's no server-side component. It's all RubyMotion. Um, the funny thing is that a Darkroom being a text-based game, it's all UI kit. So that, that part's really, really fun to say I made a, a game... I would get uh, emails from recruiters saying that, hey, we saw you have a number one app. Um, we would love to, you know, hire you on as an iOS of ours. Like, have you seen the app? It's buttons, progress bars, labels. <laughs> I think you might be looking for someone that, you know, knows, knows how to actually design a UI. But, uh, yeah, it's all UI kit. A noble circle is using sprite kit. Um, I'm considering moving that over to something called motion game, which is a bridge on a C++ library called Coco's 2DX. It's just RubyMotion and straight iOS. I have that one CocoaPod library for the voiceover stuff, and that's it. So how do you go on a sabbatical? If I need um, a sabbatical real bad, what do I do? You, uh, Asking so for you, a friend. Yeah, so you go, you go to college. Um, you graduate without debt at all. You stay gainfully employed and live off of ramen for seven years. And then you'll have enough money to go on a sabbatical when you're tired of corporate development. Does that work? <laughs> no, I, I so, like ramen, I mean, so yes. Yeah, it's awesome. Ramen and hot pockets. That's another thing with, uh, with I guess these success stories is that you hear about these overnight success stories. But this is literally like ten, fifteen years in the making, right? So you go to college, you know, and then through college, I did two jobs, graduated without without having any debt, didn't buy the you know the fancy car coming out of it, and just kind of maintained that low low level lifestyle and um saved up as much income as I could to where I could take that risk. Now, I know some people are not in that situation where you can actually do that. Uh some tips when you're going on sabbatical, definitely plan ahead. Um I think I spent I wasted 6 weeks, the first 6 weeks of my sabbatical doing things that I should have done like handling insurance, handling the transition for like medical, what do I do with my 401k and Roth? All those things should uh, where do I go for my co-work space? What's my new schedule going to look like, you know, now that I don't have to worry about that it's a Monday or not. So all those things, I wasted six weeks just to get in that habit. Another thing is that getting into a new habit takes some time also. So I would say it took me about three months just to feel like I was being productive in this new environment. So if you're only going to take a three-month sabbatical, 
I don't think that's enough time for you to really, really benefit from that, especially if you don't spend the time beforehand doing that stuff. So actually, when we went on a sabbatical, my wife and I pared down to a one-bedroom apartment. So we were in a two-bedroom apartment, and I sold everything I owned. I basically had a desk, my clothes, my laptop, and my car. It was really tough. I had game systems, PS2, PS3, all those things, and I just completely sold it off. And it was just this idea of, okay, I want to focus on really learning and, you know, building myself as just personal growth. Um, so, you know, pare down, really focus on what you want to, to get out of that sabbatical, then do it, I guess. Um, so we went to the one bedroom apartment. I promised my wife that her standard of living wouldn't suffer from me taking the sabbatical. And I just kind of lived off of my life savings at that point. And my burn, my burn raise was like, okay, I can do this for a year. Um, I'm going to put, you know, 50K on the table, do this for a year. If I run out of that 50K, I just find my job, go back and find a job again. And so that's, that's kind of what I did. Um, so if you're going to take a sabbatical plan ahead, I try to at least do six months if you, if you can and cut down your expenses, cut down all the things that you don't care about so you can really focus on what you do. So I have stuff now after three years. I put a good down payment on a house. I have a, I, I have a paid off house now, which I'm, you know, really happy about. Nice. And I actually, actually have a room. A dark uh, room? A dark room, yes. So I have a room and, uh, I have stuff now and it's, it's good. Uh, one, one nice thing with actually going on a sabbatical is that once you've done the minimalist lifestyle, uh, you find that your attachment to stuff kind of goes away. Like something breaks and you're just like, okay, whatever, it broke. No skin off my back, right? And, um, just getting rid of that upkeep and just, uh, it was, it was, it was really cool. It was really cool to go through that drastic, quote unquote, drastic change and then come back and have new perspectives on everything. Um, same thing with languages. I, I felt there was a strong correlation there with going from one language to another and then looking at other platforms and stacks and feeling the pains of Xcode, knowing the benefits of it, knowing the benefits of Visual Studio, Vim, Emacs, and just being able to speak and empathize with all swaths of those lifestyles, I guess, and cultures. So just save a lot of money. That's That's all you got to do. <laughs> I think it says something about programmers that uh, when you took a sabbatical to get away from N years in .NET development and, and programming, you spent a couple of months programming. I think that's something that maybe many of us on this call would do, and I certainly would. But uh, did you take any time, like, was there a week or two of, like, just pure brain-rotting vacation in there? Yeah, quite a few weeks. Um, there was actually, and I did do some travel, again, luckily for for the success of a dark room, but a couple of things that changed was my how much I worked per day. So I didn't do a full eight hour day. I would do, uh, and even today I do that. I, I work about five to six hours, but I work every day. And um, another thing that was really interesting was going to sleep and waking up. I go to sleep when I'm tired, and I wake up when I'm not. So not having an alarm clock and all those things was really interesting. I guess that was kind of a break. Another thing I did was look after my health. So go have an r- actual workout schedule. And have a regimen to, you know, work against and just not worry so much about a deadline or, or a specific task. Cause again, I, that was another thing with, with the motivation of the sabbatical was that I wanted to just disconnect from those deadlines and aspects. Uh, another thing that I, I think is important to touch on is that if you're building a product, I know there's developers out there who say, Oh, I want to build a product part time. Decide. Are you building a product or are you trying to learn something? Cause I, I see too many times where I say, Oh, I'm going to, I want to build this. XYZ in this new tech, new platform, 
new environment and I'm going to kill two birds with one stone and do both things. It, it doesn't work. So if you want to monetize and build an app, I would have approached it much differently, like the, the app much differently than what I did with RubyMotion. I may have just wrapped it in a web web view and just cleaned it up and try to put it out there for some, some uh, quick cash. So it was relaxing. And I guess I'm taking a week off now. So I have a big release of a noble circle that went out and I'm just going to take some a week out and binge on League of Legends or something. But um, <laughs> definitely a, a more consistent, slower paced uh, lifestyle. Uh, another thing that's probably worth mentioning is that uh, when, when you talk to people about going on sabbatical or taking some time off, eventually you get tired of just chilling on the beach, you know, drinking my heat, my ties and all that stuff. It, it, it does get boring. You start to really think about what does it really mean? What is meaningful to you? What what do you actually want to do with quote unquote life? It's an interesting position to be in and to really be able to reflect on that and think on that. Yeah, I found that my limit for that on vacation is about three days. Yeah, then I go stir crazy and it's just <laughs> like, I got I got to do something. I got to full close or or something. Anything else we should talk about before we get to picks? If people want to find that, your games, what where do they go? Uh, so you can just go to iTunes and search search for a dark room. It'll be the first hit. Same thing with Android. Um, it'll be the first hit there. Yeah, I think that's that's primarily it. I guess I was kind of su- surprised that there wasn't maybe more talk about my transition from you know .NET to Ruby. If- well, yeah, I mean, I I went through a similar transition. I started out as a as an Access developer. Um, mm-hmm. I actually left the Microsoft world when right when .NET came out. Uh, here's one that that happened to me when I moved from C and PHP and Python to Ruby. I know, I know, I said the P word. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Personal homepage. Uh, yeah. So when you came to Ruby, did you find yourself dragging a lot of .NET baggage mentally with you and writing .NET programs in Ruby? How did you get to where you were speaking Ruby fluently and idiomatically? This this was actually hilarious when it happened. So I, I had a I had a really really difficult time with the static versus dynamic typing. So C sharp four O actually has a dynamic language runtime. So while I was going through this transition to Ruby, I actually brought dynamic capabilities into C-sharp and uh, created method missing and uh, mix-ins and uh, prototypical stuff nice. to where it actually helped me out because I would get a JSON payload uh, from you know from an HTTP request. And instead of having, I guess, um, an actual model with attribute accessors and uh, set- setters and getters, um, it would create a almost like a property bag that would gain some some validation capabilities and, and uh, kind of... It was almost more like a jQuery, uh, JavaScripty, mangled mess. But it was lots of fun. But it was your mess. It was my mm-hmm. mess, and mm-hmm. it, it turned out to be really helpful because we uh, we had architectural issue uh, things where we had to replicate objects across multiple tiers. So instead of having these out of process Poco object here or Plano Ruby object here all the way across, uh, we were able to you know leverage that dynamic capability. But when I went to Ruby, I was I actually said, "Where's where's the IOC container?" For those that are um, that haven't done a .NET or Java or st- statically typed languages, uh, IOC container is basically a means for redefining new. Because you can't redefine new in in at least C sharp or Java, basically these quasi factories that would inject a object at construction with some uh, rules about how to do its lifetime management. Is it Static, uh, is it a single instance for the entire application? Is it a single instance for the thread? Is it a new instance every time, et cetera, et cetera? So because you can't redefine you, you had IOC containers that provided that capability for you. So then when going to Ruby, I was like, well, where's the IOC container? I didn't understand the concept that, well, you can redefine new. You can actually do, you know, kernel methods to create objects 
and classes and everything and do factory resolution that way. So I spent some time trying to create an IOC container because I was, I felt like, okay, the Ruby world definitely needs this. Needs this. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Meanwhile, the rest of us are backing away slowly. Yeah. And they're like, what the hell are you doing? No, I'm just remembering the charges that were made, the, the valiant cavalry charges that were made in 2007, 2009, and 2000. It comes about every two to three years where somebody says, we need inversion of control. <laughs> yes. And, and so the thing is like dependency inversion is still something you can do. It's just very, yeah. it's very different. And you, and your IAC container is like, you don't need that because you, you're using Ruby. It's, mm-hmm. you don't need it. You, um, you so, get it so implicitly and fluently exactly. for free that you can still use dependency injection and inversion right. of control in Ruby. Exactly. There's just no ceremony around it. Yeah. yeah. You might not yeah. even realize that that's what you're doing. So that was just a, it was a learning experience for me, but, uh, yeah, some of that baggage then did come over. And, you know, the other, uh, the other aspect is that, uh, I learned, uh, there, there's one little essence of Ruby that I love is going from a local variable to a, you know, just a bare, a method to a module to a class that transition, just because you don't have to put parentheses right around your method names. It's such an elegant transition that I, I don't know. It was, it was wonderful discovering that. Thank time you. Thank you. I, I'm working with developers all the time who will insist on putting parentheses on their method calls and on keeping the at sign in front of their instance variables because obviously making a method call when you could just be accessing, you know, this dot variable or at dot variable, that's much slower. And we want to use the at variable to make it clear that we're accessing a local variable and like, no, 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 you don't understand. You want to get rid of it to make it clear that you are sending a message to yourself to get a thing. And if it's a local variable, great. If it's proxied out to another service, it's transparent and you don't need to know. Yeah, so I'm a little crazy. Much time refactoring, yeah. Yeah, so I'm a little crazy that my my actual uh, method definitions don't have parentheses either. That's a new thing for me. That's a new thing for me. Six months ago, we could not have been friends. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm actually okay with it. You look at New York to Seattle, and it's all good now. Why don't you have parentheses? You're so weird. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it, it was just. It's such a subtle thing, but you know, it's perspective, right? You you don't appreciate it until you come to a language that that has it or come from a language that didn't have it, and you have this crazy IDE and all these refactoring tools because you have to put parentheses, and uh, yeah. it's weird. Now, so, are there things that uh, that you miss? I know when I used to do Visual Basic development, I really really loved the integrated debugger. Um, yeah. And switching away from that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in some languages where you pretty much have to do print statement debugging. Yeah. And even though there are debuggers available in Ruby now, I'm still a print statement debugger because, like, yeah. why would it's I tough. do that? No, so no, no. things and like that that you miss? Yes, I definitely miss the debugger. And it's it's tricky. It's a swath of – so I, I miss the debugger, but I also learned to live without debugger. You get the spectrum uh, that you get to work in. Do you want slow feedback, high fidelity, which is the debugger, Right. Or fast feedback, low fidelity, which is the print line statements. And being able to move across that spectrum was worth it. So that's something that when I was, when I was in Visual Studio, I only knew two things. I knew the low fidelity high feedback, which was compiler. And I knew high fidelity low feedback, which was a debugger. And I didn't have a really good understand, uh, understanding what was, what was in between and how you can ebb and flow through that spectrum. So it, it was enlightening from that perspective, but yeah, I do miss the debugger. Another thing is that I'm I'm an Emacs user, but I use Evil, so yes. I use them bindings oh. with Evil, obviously. <laughs> um, so I will I will never 
I will, it's the one true editor, but I'll never be as productive in Emacs that I, uh, with C sharp yeah. that I am in Visual Studio, but I gain productivity in every other language and yep. text files because right. I can't even open a text file in Visual Studio. I can open XML, I guess, but there was that trade off there. And that's something I miss is that I do, I, I'm not as productive in C sharp anymore, but I do have productivity across other languages, which is great. That's so. uh, the debugger. The ability to so the the last big uh, Windows project that I worked on was device drivers, and so we had the the Visual Studio debugger, and then when that failed us, we would whip out KD, which is the kernel debugger, or we would whip out we called it Windbag. Um, it was the WNDBG or something like that. DBG, yeah, yeah, and uh, we we just called Wind it Windbag. Bag. And the beauty of KD and Windbag is that they gave you assembly code. I mean, you were looking at the actual opcodes going into the CPU on the machine. There was no more fidelity than that other than a voltmeter on a transistor somewhere in the hardware. And yes, yeah, Sam is mocking me in the back channel for for say for using the word beauty there. No, it, it was it was absolutely beautiful. You, you um, get like memory heaps and like stat. Yeah, you get all these like pretty graphs too on like okay, where did yeah. the me- memory spike? How are the pro- how many processes yeah. were used at that point in time? It's crazy. Yeah, like, and I I, I know wanted that about. I wanted that in Ruby for so long. Like I, I had a bug that took me six weeks to track down because you'd hit you know, F12 in, in Visual Studio, and you'd get nothing. It'd be like, I have no idea where the heck I am. And it took a kernel debugger to show me that we were destroying the stack. So, you know, three instructions before. So by the time the debugger said, where am I? All the information in the computer to tell the program Stop where it is <laughs> was gone, Was had been destroyed. And I was able to actually f- track it through with, you know, like grain of rice one, one day at a time or one step at a time until I'd found it. I was able to repair it in the binary and then say, okay, this is the code change that we made. So, okay, yeah, this, this will fix that. And I've wanted that in Ruby for so long. And it finally dawned on me, I'm never, ever going to get an assembly output of Ruby code. It's never going to happen. Stop wanting it. Yeah. Maybe if you use Rubinius, you'll get close, but even then. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I um, sometimes feel annoyed by having, again, made that transition from Visual Basic way back in the day is that, uh, you know, especially at first, it feels like all of these things that you didn't even realize were separate functions, you have to go and find. First off, you have to realize that that thing that you that you want to do has a name and figure out what that name is and how to search for it. Then you have to find a tool to do that one thing. And it can feel like you have to, you know, since you've unbundled from the IDE, like you have to go and master everything all at once. And that can be kind of overwhelming. It, um, yeah, it sounds be. like you had some sort of transitional uh, help with that by doing some build stuff in Ruby partway along the way. But did you hit that at some point? I did. And uh, one of the biggest things is that when I first started using uh, using or doing Ruby, it was just straight them. So even auto-completion, I really didn't understand how to do auto-completion there. So that was frustrating, right. you know, having to go to the docs and it was a major time sink. But it, it has its benefits because then you start thinking about, well, my method names really do matter. I, I joke about it for, for the .NET site is that uh, depending on what type you have, the length of a enumerable object is either length with parentheses, count as a property, or like length as a property. And the you, you never think of it because you have the IDE integration and the autocompletion just tells you this is the type you have, this is the inference. When I started doing Ruby and you know JavaScript and all those things, I became very much aware about the consistency of my of functions and methods and what I really expect to be there or not. So again, you know, I miss it, right? The productivity aspects of it are the auto completion, even in Emacs, even with company mode and all that stuff is not as, as good as a statically typed language. 
It just isn't. But you start not missing it so much because we compensate by being more consistent with our function names and more more predictable with a lot of that stuff. And you just live and learn, and then you just really get good at ELISP, and everything's wonderful. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> just take some acid, kid. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's good. It's good. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like we've hit a lull, so let's go ahead and do some picks. All right. Uh, my picks are going to be video games, iOS, potentially Android games. So my first pick would be Transistor. This is the by the team that made uh, Bastion. Mm-hmm. So, so the cool thing about this game is that it's kind of like a turn-based role-playing game where you play a computer program, and it's got beautiful graphics, beautiful atmosphere, beautiful narrative, and uh, they actually use the word "hello world" in the game, and I immediately connected with that. As a developer, so you'll you'll see the moment when I'm talking about she like rides off in a motorcycle and says hello world, and uh, that was really cool. So that's a fun game, and these it's a premium game. You pay once, no in-app purchases, any of that stuff. Um, so my second pick would be Hoplite. Sunk way too many hours in Hoplite. Hoplite is uh, inspired by it's a turn-based strategy game, but it's almost like a crossword puzzle for people that like turn-based strategy games. So every morning I'll I'll open it up and. You know, try to beat a level or try to beat one of the one of the daily problems. So so awesome. Uh, so Hoplite would be my second game, and uh, the third game would be Alto's Adventure. Have any of you all played Knights from like the Sega Sega Saturn back in the day? It gave you such a good experience of like flying and uh, you know traversing dreams and all that good stuff. So Alto's Adventure is is a ski jumping game almost, but it, they do a beautiful job. The presentation is wonderful. The music is wonderful. And it's just a game that gets you in the flow, gets you in flow state of mind, right? So uh, Transistor, Hoplite, H-O-P-L-I-T-E, and then Alto's Adventure. Those are the those are my three picks. All right, Sam, what are your picks? Well, yes, yeah, since we're on the topic of games, uh, I've been playing a lot of Shadowrun Returns Dragonfall. This is a sort of a railroady game, but it's got some really fun writing in it. Uh, there were a couple of bits of dialogue that really like made me laugh out loud. And uh, I enjoy sort of turn-based strategy games. I, I have a hard time finding good ones that I enjoy playing, but uh, this has occupied my free time for probably 30 hours or so now. And it's also the other nice thing is that it's like three bucks on Steam. So it's a pretty low commitment if you don't like it. Yep. Three bucks on, on mobile, though. That's way too much. I know. That's <laughs> I know, super right? expensive. <laughs> Whoa, way too much, way too much. But I can't spend three bucks on this. It'll make my thumbs tired. All right, Dave, what are your picks? Uh, okay, so I was just going to pick a tech pick, but I realized that if we're talking about games, I have to pick some games. And I remembered that, oh, yeah, I've actually got games that I need to pick and share with the show. The first one is Minecraft Story Mode, which is out on, I think, everything. iOS is uh, the platform that I prefer it on. The Mac port for Steam. Once you can get it, installed and playing and working it's pretty good but it is the absolute worst install experience i have ever had bar none on a macintosh you'll see what i mean if you try to use it the port once once you're into the game you're okay you're golden but yeah a full screen app that you can't command tab out of and it presents a dialogue somewhere off screen that you have to interact with yeah and this is a positive pick once you're in the game <laughs> it is <laughs> story mode on ipad also yeah yeah minecraft story mode i'm playing it on the ipad absolutely loving it. The voice acting is superb. I love Patton Oswalt. It's just a ton of fun. It's from Telltale Games. We know that they do really good episodic type games, so I'm just buying the packs as they come out. They're released, they'll sell you four episodes at a time. They just recently released episode six. 
They're about five dollars an episode, and they are about eh, two hours worth of gameplay each. So, I mean, they're they're pretty short, but you can go back and change your choices as you go through. Episode two in particular, you'll feel a little bit ripped off because if it feels like it's only half an episode because you go after, you know, one of these uh, legendary people, heroes to to recruit them. And it turns out that in story one, you make a choice between which hero you want to go after and you get a completely different chapter two if you pick the other person. So there's a reason it feels like half a game. It's because her half an episode. It's because you only played half the episode. You went the other way. So it's a lot of fun. Tons, tons and tons of replay value. Uh, the other one is Never Alone Key Edition. Uh, it's been ported to iOS as well. You can play it on the iPad. It is one of the most gorgeous games I've ever played. It's absolutely immersive and beautiful and wonderful and fun. Those are the game picks that I have. And you know what? I'll save my tech pick for, uh, for next week. So them's my picks. All right, I've got a couple of picks. The first one is, I, I know it's not on the level of Dave's hot sauce picks, but lately I've been eating a lot of ramen noodles with sriracha sauce in it. I just love it. So good. <laughs> I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> uh, and one other thing, my dad, when he was, he, he was a missionary in Japan, and so one of the things that they put in their noodles in Japan is eggs. And so uh, typically what I'll do is I'll actually take the ramen, get the water to a boil, then I'll add the flavoring to it, and then I'll beat an egg and drop it in there, and then I'll put the sriracha in, and that's really good. So I'll I'll pick that. And uh, yeah, I've been to a few ramen restaurants in Las Vegas and in San Francisco and here in Salt Lake, and uh, there are some pretty good places. So yeah, I'm also going to really quick just mention that the show does have a Facebook page. In fact, this show should go out around the end of August. So if by the end of September we have 250 likes, then I'll do a free webinar and I'll let whoever's on the Facebook page actually pick what they want it to be. Uh, speaking of ramen, uh, I got accepted to a Ruby Kaige to present over there. Oh, nice. So I'll, yeah, so I'll be presenting on uh, game development plus Ruby equals happiness. So it's just nice. the general idea of, you know, building games with Ruby, what it feels like, you know, the trend, the evolutionary aspect, having functions called throw grenade and kill enemy and how cool that is and all that good <laughs> stuff. Nice. Nice. Um, so if you find yourself in Japan, yeah, reach out to me. We'll have ramen and, and all that good stuff. All right. Well, I don't have any other picks, so we'll just go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, Amir, if people want to follow you on Twitter or see what else you're doing, where do they go? Uh, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Amir Rajan, A-M-I-R-R-A-J-A-N. And from there, uh, you'll, you'll see my website is there, amirrajan.net. I chose the .NET ending that was deliberate back in the day, and I've kept it since then. So uh, you have AmirRazan.net. Um, I also have a book uh, out about surviving the App Store. So it's a LeanPub publication. If you go to LeanPub.com forward slash surviving the App Store, you can read all about the revenue, my marketing tactics, all that good stuff, and uh, you know, kind of kind of see everything there from my sabbatical all the way to the rise and fall of ADR. So I got that also. But yeah, feel free to reach out to me. I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about anything. Very cool. Well, before the show, these guys got me to install Pokemon. So I have to go outside now and catch one. Oh, no. So I will. Uh, we're going to sign off and we'll catch you all next week. <laughs> Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.